0: Please can you remind me If you're
1: Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you're going to be with us today on this conversation about end-of-life planning, and we've just got a wonderful guest for you. We're going to dive into this in just a little bit, but we're always getting new listeners, so I like to tell people... Hello and welcome and a little bit about us and so um, basically Alzheimer Speaks was started because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years and I thought there's got to be a way to do a better job to connect people to resources and uh, so we've been doing this since 2011 now and it's just an honor to talk with so many people all around the globe at all different levels so um, you might be able to be our next guest. We have had people with dementia, family members, friends, advocates, researchers, um, all kinds of businesses, authors, singers, songwriters. again, everyone is welcome here, and we would love to we would love to add you to that list. Also, if you are a business, we help people um, with their branding in terms of expanding their brand footprint by using all of our multimedia. We're much more than just a radio show. We've got a website, a blog, a YouTube channel, and do speaking and training around the country and um, can really help you with that. So if that's of interest, uh, just uh, go to AlzheimerSpeaks.com. There's a big contact button up top, and I would love to talk with you. Now, today on the show, you can always call in or um, hop on the chat uh, chat box as well with any questions or comments that you have. Uh, the call-in number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And, again, we'd love to – we always love to hear from our listeners because, you know what, your loyalty has been amazing. You have expanded our brand footprint here all around the world through your likes, your clicks, and your shares. And I just want to thank you because I really do believe it's through collaboration and working together that we are going to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. Now, again, before I get started, I've got a few announcements to make. Um, one, I want to just give a shout out to Keith Gallis, who wrote this great book called Parental Dementia, A Guide Through All the Difficult Questions, and um, Keith is an executive director with 20 years of experience under his belt helping families through all their difficult questions, and each chapter is devoted to one of those questions. And um, you can get the book by going to parentaldementia.com and um, use the discount code LORI, L-O-R-I, and you'll save $5.99, or you can always pick it up on Amazon, Walmart, or Barnes & Noble, and it is an ebook now um, as well. So that's, that's great to know. Now, I um, just heard from a good friend of ours here at Alzheimer Speaks Radio, Teresa Barry Tanner. And she has been working on this documentary film called Determined, which has been accepted into the Wisconsin Film Festival in Madison, Wisconsin. And she has, like I said, been on this journey to help raise awareness about dementia and um, her own experience as a caregiver and as an Alzheimer's research participant. And so this this film is about stories of Alzheimer's disease. They they look at every kind of nook and cranny across the country and abroad and and she's really kind of put her heart and her soul into telling the story. They're looking for some more donations. So if you want, um, if you want to put your money in a really powerful place, um, go to their website and you can just go to documentaries, uh, documentaries.org forward slash um, will I Be Next? And that's, uh, you can go to documentaries.org forward slash will-i-be-next and donate to, to a wonderful, wonderful cause. Now, people are always asking me about um, where am I going to be next and how can they hear uh, some of my talks? Well, uh, tomorrow, February 19th, The um, Educate Program, or Educate Program, I should say, is doing their virtual road trip, and we've got a webinar that you can sign up for. You can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com on our front page and find information out on these. But we're going to be talking about Dementia Care is Changing, Are You? And then on um, Thursday, the 20th, our friends at Ling Bloomston are building a new uh, continuum of care in Lino Lakes. And they are going to be having a kind of informational um, ceremony on that. So you can you can find out information. Uh, just call them at 651-646-2941. That's 651-646-2941. And they are having a presentation, um, again, Thursday February 20th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Waters Living Waters Lutheran Church up in Lionel Lakes, and that's in Minnesota. I will also be um, at the Waters in Eden Prairie uh, Thursday the 20th between 3 and 5, and we'll be doing um, a presentation about shifting dementia care from crisis to comfort. And then for professionals, um, this is a the conference for professionals only Um, Here in Minnesota, Handy Medical Supply has a big conference down at the St. Paul River Center, and um, that's going to be fabulous. And I'll be speaking there from 945 to 1045 going into March if you are out in New Jersey. I would love to see you March 11th. This will be a family session. It'll run from 4.30 to 6.30 uh, through Artist Senior Living. And then I'll be doing on March 12th uh, with artists in the morning from 8 to 10 o'clock. We're going to do a professional program out there as well. And then I'll be coming back to Minnesota for March 16th. And I will be at the waters in White Bear Lake from five to six and that will be uh, more of a family session and then I'm heading back out to Pennsylvania the end of the month. And on um, Tuesday, the 31st of March, we'll be doing a family program with Art Senior Living again. And that'll be in the Longhorn um, area of Pennsylvania. And then on April 1st, we'll be doing a professional program uh, with them from 9 to 11. And then I'm just going to give one more shout out here. Um, Winona in Minnesota here is is having a whole Dementia-Friendly Community Week, and I will be participating in that on April 2nd, and we are going to be showing the film A Timeless Love, Um, so I'm excited for that. That's going to be a a lot of fun. So let me introduce our guest here today. You know, our topic is really about... How can a death doula help families and what the heck is a death doula? So we are going to find out exactly what the heck is going on with all of that, because, uh, you know, it's it's something that is a little foreign to, I think, a lot of people. But it's something that could be also helpful and, and comforting, not only to the person who is dying, but to their family and friends. So I've asked Nicole uh, Matarazzo to um, join us today, and she is just such a poised and compassionate spirit. And she's a death doula who supports individuals and their loved ones as they face that time where it can be just overwhelming and so uncertain. You don't know what to do or how to how to react um, when you hear that that someone's terminal. So Nicole has told me that she considers it an honor uh, to be called into this sacred space of dying. And I so get that because I've had the honor of being there with, with many people who have passed. And it truly is. And I know some of you out there listening are probably thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Um, but listen in and, and hear this side of the story, because I think it's really important. She is deeply knowledgeable and devotes her real tender heart to the vulnerability that illness and, and death can bring to individuals and families. So welcome, Nicole. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Well I'm excited to have this conversation. I know it can be a really difficult one for people to have and um typically I think it's it's once they're in crisis uh people uh don't tend to like to talk about this or plan and I just think it gosh it just makes things so much easier when you do have <laughs> <Yes>. this <that> discussion. <laughs> And so um, it'll be it'll be uh, fun to to get into. But before I ask our line of questions, I always like to ask if you have been personally touched by family or friends uh, through dementia. Yes, I have. My mother in law has
0: dementia, and she has currently been living with us. Um, she has late stage middle dementia, um, so it, it her, the care involved is 24/7 care and you know she is such a great teacher in patience and learning how to approach a task or a desire with a different perception and a one of uh, a slower perception and a
1: more mindful perception Oh, interesting. I, uh, mm-hmm. I I get where you're going with all that, and uh, <laughs> to me it makes it makes perfect sense because I was on the journey with my mom, you know, for 30 years, and I, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now is because she really did change. Uh, my life and how I look at things significantly, you know, with that. And so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. Well, thank you for for sharing that. That's always just helpful, I think, sometimes for our audience to know um, your personal background. Why don't you tell us um, a little bit about the overview of what the heck is a death doula and how did you get yes. into
0: it? Yeah, let's define that first. Um, A death doula is a person who offers non-medical, holistic, supportive care to a dying person and their loved ones. And that can be family, caregivers, friends, um, you name it, whoever's in the house um, sharing that experience with the individual. And that comes by way of presence, guidance, education, coaching, companionship. You know, death doulas help navigate the unknowns of death while demystifying the dying process. We are, as a culture, we don't talk about death and dying, so we arrive to that space and time, most of us, unprepared. And death doulas, you know, they offer a holistic, heart-centered, emotional, to the emotional, physical, spiritual um, aspects, during that time of dying that can be filled with discomfort, uncertainty, anxiety, fear, and isolation. Um, Often death doulas uh, create a a foundational support, um, but many death doulas come with extra um, specialization like Reiki or comfort touch or shamanic work. Um, some death doulas specialize in ritual and ceremony only, um, aromatherapy, just to name a few.
1: Okay, well that mm-hmm. that is uh, quite the array of of what uh, what someone can expect with a with death doula. When when someone would, let's say would hire um, you to come in, how do you begin your work with not only the individual but but the family? Yeah,
0: so typically uh, people will find me um, by word of mouth um, through families or friends who have experienced my work before. Um, Then they'll go to my website, uh, endoflifepathways.com, search me out, (laughs) figure out who the heck am I and what in the world do I do, and then they uh, give me a call. Usually it's family members reaching out to me, not the individual who is dying, and so, with that caregiver or family member that is seeking extra support, um, I typically spend about a half an hour to an hour with a person who um, calls me, kind of conducting a short intake. Um, that conversation gives me enough information to know the type of situation I'll be walking into. So, I learn what kind of approach will be most appropriate, depending upon what the person's condition is. How long are they, uh, how close are they to dying? How long have they been ill? Um, How much pain are they in? What are their fears? What are the fears of their caregivers? Who are their caregivers? Uh, Have they enrolled in hospice? Very, very important. Um, Do they live in their home or facility? Um, Most important, are their basic needs being met? not just the dying individual, but the people who are taking care of that person. Um, So it's a place and time where I get to learn what are the things that I need to research before I show up um, about their illness, about symptoms, about medications they're taking, possible side effects of those medications, when do they take those medications so that we can have um, a conversation if it's at an appropriate um, stage of the dying process that's not going to be inhibited by, um, by medication, pain medication or what, what have you. Um, frequently, by the time I get a call, families are reaching burnout from the extended amount of care that they're dedicating to their loved one and most likely have been for a very long time during the illness. It's common that the, the dying person is exhausted, overwhelmed, scared, confused, and oftentimes they're ready to have a conversation about their death, but not necessarily with their family. So it's my responsibility to show up informed so that I'm helpful and I can relieve some of
1: that burden that sits on the shoulders of everyone involved. You know, it's interesting, you know, when you said that, you know, the family a lot of times is is burnt out because I totally see that. And <laughs> and so often families don't want to talk about it. I mean, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. And, That's right. a, a, and a lot of times, and sometimes it's the person who's dying who's not ready to talk, and the family is. And to get everybody on mm-hmm. the same page, um, it really kind of takes some massaging, <laughs> you know, to get people, <laughs> people comfortable with that. And, um, yes. and I, I I've, you know, I've had several um, friends and uh, going through, you know, cancer lately. And it's like when the person who was you know, who was dying wanted to talk about it, the family wasn't. And then when the family was, then they weren't. And it, they just exactly. kind of went back and forth. And you could see the stress levels on both sides going up. And yes. and then finally, when they're able to, to come to this peacefulness of, you know what, we can't control this. So let's just do the best That's we right. can through this. <laughs> um, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it ends up being an amazing an amazing journey um, yes. and and I would imagine that you find I know that that I found this and I'm in no way a, a death duel I've just been honored to be in, in at in passing um, like you said it, it's mm-hmm. just such a such an honor um, to be in mm-hmm. that space but you know not always will you get everybody on the same page either I mean I've, I've seen where true. some some family members still aren't willing to accept it, or they don't want to be around it, or you know, I'm just gonna do this because you know, mom or dad's gonna be okay, or my brother or sister, or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. I'll I'll catch them I'll catch them next time, and then there yes. isn't the next time, and then you know, there's this added grief and things that that comes That's to right. it. So, um, and I loved when you talked about. All of the detail of getting the knowledge of what is the person really going through, and mm-hmm. is, you know the medications because those do affect. You know, it, you know, is someone going to be coherent and awake when you're there? You know, all of those mm-hmm. little things. I had a friend recently in the hospital, and I thought I wish, I wish the hospital would have paid as much attention as you are. Um, to yeah. them and through the discharge process, cause it's just been yes. one, one nightmare after another. And it's looking at that whole umbrella, I think is just so, so important to people. Um, I've got somebody on the sure. line here and I'm not sure if they want to sure. ask a question, but I'd like to pull them in. So I've got sure. somebody, um, with a four, seven, nine, eight number four, seven, nine, eight. Did you want to ask a question or make a comment? You're live on the air, 4798. Nope, some people just listen this way, so that's okay too. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, so, can you give us a couple maybe examples of that you've gone through in terms of how you've uh, approached maybe the, the situation a little bit differently or offered different services to people? Yes. For, Yeah, I'll speak
0: um, first to the foundation of what I offer. So it makes a little bit more sense um, using an example. Um, So every family uh, requires a different approach, has different Mm -hmm. needs, different concerns, discomforts, different spiritual or religious beliefs, or no beliefs at all. Um, My offering to each family Uh, is different. There isn't a script or a recipe uh, that works for every single family. Um, This is where the foundation of of what I have to offer is so important, and that is deep listening, inquiry, and keen observation um, about what is going on and what's going on in the physical environment, what's going on in the relationships of the people in the room. These kinds of things. Some families are tired of talking about their illness, uh, individuals and families, and they feel defeated by having to, um, how do you say it, like being forced to turn to end of life decisions. They're not quite ready for that. Um, Most families, like we said before, are uncomfortable talking about death and, you know, or are too tired to initiate meaningful conversations or don't have the skill set to do that within the family context, Um, especially when folks are secretly grieving and are scared. Or like you said before, um, there's family conflict. That is very, very common um, with many of the clients that I work with. Um, Most of the individuals that I have worked with that are dying are ready to talk about their impending death, but but they don't want to upset their family members by engaging in the conversation. So it leaves them feeling quite isolated, alone, um, as that great unknown approaches. Um, having a professional person with experience um, and skill who is comfortable in initiating these kinds of conversations um, in my experience, has brought relief to the whole family unit, even when the conversations are uncomfortable or um, there's a great deal of suffering and grief involved. On the other side of that conversation comes some relief. Um, Just the presence and having the capacity to facilitate those difficult conversations, gives them permission, if you will, to talk about those fears and curiosities that, that sit right at the forefront of their minds and their hearts. And, gosh, it's so easy. I know this as a from, a, from personal experience of taking care of family and friends who have uh, been ill and are, have died. Um, it is so easy to get carried away with the direct care elements of giving care, like medication administration, brief changes, wound cleaning, eating, bathing, you name it. Um, there's something always there on the to-do list. And so when those, um, when those uh, practical pieces of caregiving take up the space, it does provide a place for movement of that emotional energy that, that is stuck inside, um, but then it's you know it's important for me to speak to those tasks that are that are just they're they're exhausting and they and they kind of take up all of the room. So having someone to come in and, and have those meaningful conversations and initiate them um, has been a relief for families. Um, so and uh, there are also other a plethora of other services um, you know that we that I offer. So maybe I'll talk about that first, and then um, speak to um, some of the experiences that I've had with clients. Um, sure, I that'd be that, great. Okay. Uh, I find that creating an end-of-life care plan similar to creating a birth plan um, is, is imperative. Um, and we do that by way of intentional conversation and, uh, what I focus on and what I learned in training, um, uh, several years ago is focusing on the five different domains of life of a person's life, that being the emotional, spiritual, mental, practical, and physical. And so every plan is different. You know, it depends on how ill the person is, how close to dying the person is, how cognitive are they? Um, you know, those are the, the, really the primary um, pieces that we have to be aware of. So, end of life care planning isn't necessarily appropriate for someone who is nearing active dying. Most of those people are spending lots of time um, what looks like sleeping and mm-hmm. aren't up for a conversation. And uh, folks like with uh, dementia, depending upon what stage of dementia, Therein, We can care for them as end-of-life doulas and do work. However, the end-of-life care planning looks different for those individuals. Um, through the end-of-life care planning, we determine what are their wishes, their desires, fears, joys. Um, we, we need to talk about those kinds of things and kind of do some internal excavating um, in order to find, you know, where are people um, deep inside as they approach this very sacred time. Um, and, uh, and then so mm, then we pick like uh, we determine reasonable action steps that that are attainable with the intention of meeting the end of life desires of the dying person um, Sometimes my clients stumble upon desires or uh, discover new things about themselves um, simply by having this conversation. Um, And that's an exciting thing to bear witness to. Sometimes it's sad and um, and it gives us the opportunity to turn to those sad pieces instead of turning away from them. Um, Sometimes just having the conversation with a dying person and creating their own personal plan sends the message to them that, that their experience has value and that they matter. And just by way of this meaningful conversation, it brings the relief and comfort at a time that feels so uneasy. Um, so with compassion and skilled support, we can meet not just their needs, but their wants as well, including the caregiving team that's involved, family, friends, those kinds of things. Most often people really want to help families who are in this situation, but they're scared. They're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing. They don't know exactly what to do. They're afraid to just show up and sit with someone and hold their hand. And so this is why this planning piece is, um can be super valuable, um, you know, again, depending upon where a person is in their dying process. Um, life review, legacy work, um, these are great ways um, to, to bring value to a person's life and assure them that they'll be remembered. Um, it's a wonderful time to create messages um, that they'd like to leave behind to children, grandchildren, grandmothers, um, so on and so forth. Um, Another modality that I bring to the table that is especially important when we're talking about bringing comfort and decreasing anxiety is comfort touch. And so it's a gentle acupressure. It's not massage. Um, Mary Kathleen Rose developed it um, with the intention of bringing calm, comfort, relaxation, relaxation. And relaxation to people that are ill and um, people that are dying. Um, This works really well um, when people are not cognitive, when there's agitation, um, when people don't want to talk about anything else, they just want to relax and be calm. Um, Another way of, of bringing that kind of comfort or peace to the table is you know poetry readings guided imagery music um, meditation um, great way to bring a sense of calm um, sometimes simply companioning the person in silence um, by sitting bedside and holding their hand is enough um, we tend to like to fill the space with words when we get nervous and um, or uncertain about you know what if what it in, is my presence okay, or those kinds of things. So we begin to talk a lot. Um, So I always remind family members, sometimes being really quiet is just enough. Um, Providing advocacy, um, going to doctor's appointments, um, and, and being kind of an extra set of ears. Oftentimes families who accompany their dying person to doctor's office visits, they're often overwhelmed. Scared, um, grieving. So some of the language that's spoken doesn't necessarily land very well. And they leave the appointment wondering what the heck was just said. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do next. Um, So that's been helpful for some of my clients. Um, Certainly working alongside hospice um, and skilled nursing, assisted living, memory care staff. Um, being the advocate for, for my client um, is just a beautiful way to create more support, Um, especially when we're talking about um, hospice, having a relationship with hospice is really important um, in facilitating care to a dying person. Ceremony and ritual. Um, I cannot say enough about how important um, those pieces are, and uh, both with the, with the individuals who are dying and their loved ones. Um, this is especially true when we're participating in creating end-of-life care plans. Um, to create a very simple ritual or ceremony around the conversation gives the conversation a container where emotions like grief and laughter, sorrow, anger, um, they can be expressed They can be seen. They can be held and acknowledged in a special way. And then when we close the ritual, that time is done, allowing us the spaciousness to move on to the the next thing that arrives. Um, Ceremony and ritual are really important um, when a person is in the the active dying um, stage and
1: post-death.
0: Um, very important times to be holding ceremony with
1: families. Yeah, it's, I think the ceremony piece is, is so important. You had talked, you touched on so many different things. And, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about was we hear so often that some people, you know, want to pass alone, They don't want family presence. Yeah. Um, and, and others do want family um, or, or mm-hmm. special uh, friend presence. You know, or they want um, kind of this sacred circle. There's certain people that they want around, but there's others that that maybe they don't. Um, mm-hmm. Because some people are really, really private about this. I've got one friend who is very much like that. She's got tons of friends and um, mm-hmm. and family, but she's like, I I know I just want a few, just a handful mm-hmm. of people around me yes. at that point. And how do you deal with that with family and friends who? you know, want to be there or feel a need to be there and say, you know, it's nice, it's a nice offer, but this is really about their last wish. And yeah you know, how, how do you recommend family and friends deal with that?
0: Yeah. So uh, we, I've had a couple of clients who um that was their wish before we entered all of these end of life conversations. And so It ended up with those um, two clients that in the end, they really wanted um, one or two, one client wanted one family member in the room with me, and then the other um, client wanted two family members in the room with me. And so one of the conversations that I do have with families um, as we enter um, this end-of-life care planning uh, bit is that this time and space is about your loved one and what your loved one wishes and needs. And so we're going to make it about that person. And when you enter your dying time, you will get to choose what you want, what you need. And so this person only has X amount of time, theoretically, to live. And so how important is it to you to honor what your loved one wants. Mm-hmm. And so by way of that conversation, it softens the, the needing to be needed and wanting to play a role in that, um, you know, that, that dying time. You know, there's some people who have such curiosity about like, I want to be there when that happens, of course, because we're so removed from from dying and so we really make the conversation about the person who is dying we meet that person where they're at sometimes we don't get to understand their wishes or desires and maybe we'll be able to work into a place where there's some understanding and maybe we won't and we have mm-hmm. to be comfortable with that and we have to be, accept that
1: yeah, it really is about respecting wishes and, and I think if people can think about would you you know, if you were dying, would you want your wishes respected? You know, and I think all of us would say, Well, yeah, that's why they're my wishes, you know. Yeah. And so when you when you put it back on yourself and and then accept the fact that everybody deals with things differently. And, and maybe, you know, their love for you is too deep and, and they, they know how much it's going to hurt you. So it's hurting them and they can't mm-hmm. add that on to their journey already, that it, it's mm-hmm. better to be separate. Or maybe someone, you know, writes a, <clears throat> writes a letter or sends a card or does a video or an audio and that person can hear it without them mm-hmm. being in their presence. That's you right, know, totally. I mean, there's, there's lots of different options like that, and, and I know it's hard for families not to get upset. I remember when my uncle was dying, and I could literally I could feel his pain. and mm-hmm. you know, my aunts and my, my cousins, I, they were so wrapped up in their own grief, and, and I understand that, but they, they didn't see that. And so yeah. I started communicating with, uh, with the staff going, he needs, he needs more pain, you know, because I could, I could read his body language and I could physically mm-hmm. feel his, his pain um, yeah. at times. And that was a difficult thing for them to understand and accept because, you know, everybody wants to be, I not everybody, but a lot of people want to be there and they want to be able to do that. But sometimes we just can't, you know, because we That's do right. have to deal with our own grief and our own process and um and having that outside person who's able to do that to to give that comfort cuz you know you can't take care of anyone else if if you're not well you know you just That's can't right. do a good job at that and, and sometimes right. and sometimes we have to process that you know i i need some healing myself here too and and i think it's uh it's nice to you know have somebody uh like you there who you know, just has seen this a, a bunch. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. most of us aren't around death and dying a lot, and so we're newbies to it, and so right. we don't know what to expect. And when you've got somebody mm-hmm. with experience, um, embrace that. You know, yeah. because they're they're going to have a lot more options that is, are going to be mm-hmm. comforting to to uh, to everyone. I think. Um, now, what about a person with dementia uh, diagnosis? Mm-hmm. And again. You know, a, a person with dementia could uh, be early stages and still die, or they could be very end stages, just like any other yeah. disease. So how, how do you deal with that? Because I think sometimes family and friends have different expectations too, um, yes. the, of the process because dementia is involved. That's
0: right. Um, So, yes, I do work with uh, folks who have a dementia diagnosis. And, uh, yes, it is really important to understand where they are at and in the disease process. And that's where that, like, um, that keen um, ability to read the field, if you will, both with the person with dementia and their family members. Um, Lots of inquiry to family members about what their journey has been like like up until the point that I come in. Um, and so, yeah, that, you know, the goals and the, and the results, you know, differ for someone with dementia, whatever stage uh, they're in in their dementia. A lot of times modeling for families how to be in conversation with a person who has dementia, um, how to create comfort um, for the person who, who have, has dementia, which requires the family members getting comfortable with a different way of interacting with their loved one. And so oftentimes families, you know, depending upon the stage of dementia, feel like, what's the point? Like their cognition is so low um, that connecting is an impossibility. And so it's been really important um, for me to show them that while, yes, they may not remember your name, they may not remember, you know, their lives, but they still have feelings. And there's a way that we can be with our um, folks who have dementia and address those feelings and, and create the space where they feel touched, they feel seen, they feel heard. Now, with folks in a stage of dementia that isn't the latter stages of dementia or even middle dementia, where perhaps there's, you know, memory loss or some memory loss and some things kind of come and go, um, these kinds of things, with those, it also depends on the type of dementia. Um, And so I had a beautiful experience with a client who had Lewy body dementia, and He was really hanging on, hanging on to life for a year and a half. And I would sit with him once a week for an hour to two hours. It would depend on how long it took us um, to get through the conversation that he wanted to have, that was on the forefront of his heart and his mind. Mm -hmm. And it's a patient, a very patient conversation. And eventually a story or an idea or a feeling or a desire or a memory would come from behind the story that he was already telling me. And what I was able to do was document those stories that he was telling me mostly about his childhood I was able to relay those stories to the family and the feelings and the emotions that were coming through for him by way of his story. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience to be with that family um, for, I, I, it was a, a little over a year. And um, he had enrolled in hospice and then he was discharged from hospice or graduated from hospice because he was no longer meeting the requirements. Um, to be in hospice, and after a few months or something like that, it's hard for me to remember exactly the time, um, I did notice some decline and um, suggested to the family that we call hospice back for another evaluation. One of the reasons is because he deeply missed one of his volunteers,
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: while he wouldn't um, remember, you know, certain caregivers that would come in and give care and these kinds of things, this one gentleman, he remembered, and he would talk about the same stories over and over and over again that were true. They had happened. And so it was really important for me um, to to get hospice enrolled again so that he could be um, with this one volunteer um, who was a male and, and they just connected on so many different levels. Um, and then, You know, had the great good fortune to have my cell phone on in the middle of the night one night. Um, And uh, his family lived up in the mountains and they couldn't get a hold of his daughter, who was the primary caregiver. And so they called me and they said, we've had some decline when we would like someone to come. And so I was able to come in the middle of the night and sit with him and have ceremony, Um, just he and I. And um, lots of prayer um, to the family members that had been showing up, who were deceased, um, that he would talk about and say that he saw. And um, when his daughter arrived, I was able to leave. She was able to spend time with him um, based on the instructions that I had given for that time. Um, one of the really important pieces of my, pieces of my practice is that when that active dying co- time comes, I don't necessarily have to be there all the time. And so one of the beauties is, is to teach the family members who are the caregivers how to care for their loved one during that time, what to do, what to say, say nothing at all, um, these kinds of things. So it's not scary for them. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the dying process look like? You know, what can you expect to see come up? Um, I'm always available by, by phone if things get um, confusing or too emotional or, you know, these kinds of things. And they feel like they need me to come in and anchor that space. Um, and so she was able to um, be with him as he took his last breath. And um, and then I showed up moments later, and we set the stage um, for his post-death ceremony, um, which was very tender. His granddaughter was
1: able to attend, and um, yeah. <laughs> oh, neat. You know, when you were talking about, um, you know, the act of dying and helping people through the process, um, when my own mother was dying, um, she actually started coming to me in dreams before she passed. And mm-hmm. and one of them was, you're not going to be here. And I'm like, but I'm always here, you know, and I, of course, <laughs> took it personally and was offended. Yes. And, and um, I'm like, but I'm always here. And she just said, no, I need you to, I need you to be gone for two reasons. Yeah. She said, one, I need you to be gone so that I know that you will carry on this work. Mm, beautiful. And the other was, I need you to be gone because the rest of the family needs to participate in death and they need to not be scared of it. And my mom was always so adamant when we were little. She would bring us to the funerals and wakes, and her friends would Mm -hmm. be, Dorothy, you really, you know, they're too little. And she's like, they need to understand people come into this world and people leave. And I want my, and so she, so. When when she was actively dying, I actually had two keynotes and I left. My family thought I was having a nervous breakdown, except for my <laughs> daughter who, who understood. Um, but I was respecting her wishes. But one of the things that was so powerful that that I was taught, um, she she never stopped teaching me lessons. Was I thought I would communicate with everybody by phone, and my daughter mm. said, you know, why don't we um, Facebook? And so here I am getting off the plane in Arizona, down in baggage claim. And my daughter's like, I think, I think this might be it. Do you want to say goodbye to her again? And so here I am mm. in baggage claim on video talking to my mom.
0: <laughs> and,
1: um, you know, and it was just, it was a, it was a bizarre thing. She didn't die, but the woman next to me at baggage claim ended up sitting across the seat from me and overheard my conversation with the man on the plane who's, who whose father-in-law, I think it was, had dementia. And so the whole flight, we were talking about dementia. And so, I mean, there were just, she had everything all just set out. And so during my time when I was gone, I I was Mm -hmm. communicating with everybody via video. And it was like, I didn't miss a beat. I was was there when we did the last rites. I saw her take her last breath. I Mm -hmm. um, was able to put my one brother in line when he was, out of line and nobody was strong enough in the room to put him mm. in his place and so I cracked a joke and mm. put him in his place and cut <laughs> attention and, and, and we moved <laughs> along and so don't underestimate the power of video or phone calls if you're long distance right. um, it, you know right. it's it's amazing and you know we can think that oh you know they don't know you know they're sleeping they're not mm-hmm. here but uh, and I'll just give one example of mm-hmm. of this myself when i um, I was going to go do my keynote, and i had I had checked in, you know about ten minutes before I had to hop on stage. And I remember telling my mom at the end of the conversation, I said, "Okay now, we had a deal. I'm not there, but we're in this together, mm-hmm. and I expect you with me." And um, I said, "I'm going to be on stage in ten minutes." I went to go on stage and I actually tripped going up. I didn't fall, but when I looked <sighs> up, I, I was, I had the chills and the room was just white orbs. That's all I could see. Ooh. I couldn't see the audience. It was just lights. And in that moment, wow. I didn't know, I didn't know if she passed or if she, if she was there with me. And afterwards mm-hmm. I called my my daughter um, via Facebook and I said how's she doing and she said mom it was the weirdest thing I said what she says right after you told grandma to come her body got so hot and so red and we couldn't cool her down till about 10 minutes ago and I said that's about when I got mm. off the stage oh my goodness so, I know and so they know I, I, they are yes. So present. And even if they can't communicate with us in certain ways, I mean, I, I, it was just the whole, her whole dying process was such a gift to me on so many new levels um, that taught me that we are, you know, we are so much more than what we think we are in terms of relationship in being and um, the way to be able to honor people is just so Critical. Now, some people might ask, um, Nicole, what's mm-hmm. the difference between, between you and palliative care and hospice? Because I think a lot of people yeah. think palliative care and hospice are going to always be there. And I can, I can say, boy, it sure was different from when my dad died in 01 to when my mom mm-hmm. died in 2014 in terms of what services were available yeah. And, yeah. and how much they were present. So what, if you can yeah. explain that, I think that'd be great. Yeah. So
0: uh, death doulas don't, um, they're not employees of hospice. We are setra- separate entities. Um, but for my work and the work I do, it is crucial for me to, to work alongside hospice in giving care to to their patients, my clients. Um, sometimes I'm called in before hospice. People aren't ready to to turn to the idea because it means one thing to families and that means that we're being asked to turn to our death. and so there's some resistance there's some procrastination um, families wait too far um, too long um, before they call in hospice and so with those families who have called me in um, without calling in hospice as well, um, we have a real heart-to-heart about um, how my work is dependent upon the hospice workers. And together, we can work alongside each other and provide the best um, uh, experience for uh, these, for families. Um, it, it makes, when I'm working alongside um, hospice it makes the the experience richer and deeper if you will for those families who often you know suffer in pain and isolation and you know hospice has so many supportive measures during a time where people support and there's not too many people um i have found that um the the nature of our roles um, can have aspects that are similar, but we're also very different. You know, DEPDUAs don't offer medical care um, to their clients, and um, I don't offer the work of the very important work of a CNA to come in and care for an individual and bring relief to families so that they can have a break from bathing their their loved one. Um, I certainly don't have the the unique skill set of a social worker or chaplain. I um, may mm-hmm. bring so much support to families um, and to the dying person. Um, so I honor and respect the offerings of hospice. Um, you know, together, like I said before, we just create a better dying experience for individuals and their families. Well, that's, that's one of the one of it's the such pra- important. Practical, it is. Um, one of the practical, like, differences is that hospices is funded by Medicare. And so that's a constraint for hospice workers. Every hospice worker that I have met has wanted to spend more time with their client um, or their patient. And because hospice is funded by Medicare, they're restricted. Um, To how much time that they can spend with a patient. And sometimes um, with particular hospices, um, the workload, the amount of clients that need to be seen in one day is astronomical. And so it doesn't, um, that kind of situation doesn't allow time. Now, Mm -hmm. You can move into a situation where someone has um, reached active dying. And so there's no time for planning, end-of-life care planning, none of that business. They're inactive dying. And so you can move in and create beautiful, beautiful support for that person and their um, families. And um, and hospice is there, you know, to, to meet people along the way. Coming in at the last minute, Happens and it happens far too often. Um, so my suggestion to everybody listening is call hospice right away. Um, it it isn't going. It's not the death sentence. Hospice is there to support people and to bring care, to bring comfort. Um, and as far as death doula go, death doulas and hospices go, I've had the uh, the, the, the most beautiful experiences. Working alongside hospice
1: um, mm-hmm. staff, yeah, yeah, it it is. Uh, I I can't agree with you more in terms of talking to palliative care and and hospice. They provide such great support, and it's it's important. And again, I think a lot of people don't go there because they're not ready to deal with the emotional peace but you know give yourself more time than less time in in order to that's deal right. with this death and dying and you know my mom was on hospice and then got pulled off because again like like the one you were talking about she improved mm. and mm-hmm. uh, she lived mm-hmm. three she lived three more years I mean, <laughs> yes. we don't we don't know how long we have and so we have to that's stop right. thinking that we do um it's it just right. it doesn't doesn't work that way at all um that's right well this has just been a really a fascinating conversation. And, again, if we have anyone that has uh, some questions or comments, please feel free to use the chat box, or you can call in to 323-870-4602. Um, we only have about four minutes left. This hour has just flown by. <laughs> um, it's, um, I, I just think this is such an important conversation for people to have. I think it's important to talk about end of life and what do we want you know and Mm -hmm. you know uh, even when it comes to funerals and and wakes or celebrations of life what do you want let people know that in advance um have that have that preparation you know and it it takes the stress off everybody
0: that's right and and, so
1: that you can focus on one another
0: and beyond advanced directives like, advanced mm-hmm. directives are really, really important. They're a very important piece. And then beyond advanced directives, there's another conversation to be had. So some of my clients are folks who are not ill, they're not close to dying, and they reach out to me to create these end-of-life care plans beyond advanced directives so that they are expressing while they're well, um, this is what I want. And Mm -hmm. this is where we can begin teaching our culture how to die and um, make it more of a household word than it is and make it dying will always bring suffering. And Mm -hmm. it's just the nature of the beast, just like birthing a baby. It's a beautiful experience and it's hard and there is suffering same way with dying. But when we take a moment to plan, to, to roll around in what our desires might be, not from a place of living, but from a place of dying. So learning and sitting in, practicing what our own death might look like mm-hmm. so that we can create a plan from that place, not necessarily from a place of living. Um, and so it's so important. I'm doing this with my kids um my 17 and 21 year old um they are going to know how to to die well if you will mm-hmm. yeah. um at least have sovereignty in it and choice um about you know what who do i want in the room what do i want the room to look like what kind of emotional stuff do i need to to talk about what are the special things i want to say to people these
1: kinds of things yeah, yeah. Exactly. What brings you comfort? What doesn't? And I think one of the that's things right. to keep in mind too that that I've learned through this journey is that, you know, you can't have great grief without great love, and that's an honor that you love that's that right. deeply. So um, right. people can people can get a hold of you by going to your website, Endoflifepathways.com That's endoflifepathways.com dot um, They can also reach up out to you by email at at uh, your name um, n and then Mazarrado 4 at gmail.com and we have that on the radio page or the blog page so you can find that along with your phone number 8609657 five four eight thank you so much for taking time with us today nicole i really appreciate the work that you're doing and i know our audience um will have gotten a lot out of this conversation so again keep up the great work wonderful thank you for having me (laughs) thank you and again um everybody um have a wonderful week and and share this episode this is an important conversation we all need to have Till next time, bye now.